Welcome to Wandering Blurds, the show that lets those in the know know just where to go when traveling the big blue marble. I'm Miki, just Miki, no more, no less, coming to you from Harlem, NYC, via the Gifted Sounds Network and BKLYN. Like so many other states around the country, the state of New York is currently under a shelter-in-place order at the time of this recording. So we're doing our best to entertain and inform you from the confines of our comfy homes. The sound quality may not be what you're accustomed to from the Gifted Sounds Network, but bear with us. To quote Ray Charles, we gonna make it do what it do, baby, here on Wandering Blurds. Thank you for joining us for this second installation of our pandemic minisodes. In this episode, we're going to pick up where we left off in the journey of the 1918 flu epidemic, a.k.a. the Spanish influenza. We're going to delve into the virus's journey across Europe and its effect on people who caught it. We'll also find out how and why it came to be known as the Spanish flu, although it didn't come from Spain. A little disclaimer, before we get started, this minisode contains graphic descriptions of what happened to people infected with the 1918 flu. This was a devastating contagion that wreaked havoc on the people who caught it. Some of the details may not be appropriate for sensitive listeners or younger audiences, so please be advised. left off, the soldiers who had recovered from the flu at Camp Funston were making their way to other bases around the country for further training and on to transport to the war in Europe. The American troops carrying the pathogen that infected thousands in America disembarked in Brest, France in April of 1918. Brest is a beautiful seaport town in Brittany, France. For those who want to wander to the town where one of the most deadly contagions since the plague entered Europe, it's a far cry today from what it was in 1918. Brest has been a military harbor and major seaport town since 1631. It's the deepest port in the western part of France. Today it's home to Oceanopolis, an aquarium that's home to more than 10,000 species of aquatic animals. The French National Botanical Conservatory for Endangered Plants and the National Botanical Gardens are in Brest. There is a maritime museum and several forts to visit 
while you're there. And the town is also home to the Pointe Ray de Couvrance, which is a huge vertical lift bridge. Today, Brest bears little resemblance to what it was in February of 1918, when the U.S. Navy built a naval air station there to operate seaplanes and disembark thousands of U.S. troops. Then, as in now, the virus can lie, lie dormant in the body for 14 days or more before a person who has it manifests any symptoms. While other people may have the virus and never exhibit symptoms, becoming unwitting, otherwise healthy carriers of the disease. American soldiers brought the 1918 flu with them to the port city where it quickly infected the populace there. By April 10, 1918, French troops who trained with American soldiers started falling ill with the flu. It moved into northern France as U.S. troops continued to stream in. The virus mutated in its trip across the sea and became more virulent as it moved through the trenches and battlefields of Europe. Healthy soldiers would arrive in Brest, become infected, and spread the contagion to every village and hamlet they entered as they traveled to their duty stations. However, parasite-borne trench fever was far less virulent and contagious than the 1918 flu. The Allied forces called the 1918 flu three-day fever and knock-me-down fever. From France, the contagion traveled to Belgium and the Netherlands through Switzerland. The newly named three-day fever hopped across the English Channel and into Britain by early May of 1918. It also moved down into Spain, where it killed 8 million people and affected Alfonso XIII, King of Spain. This is where the Haskell County bred influenza of 1918 got the name the Spanish Influenza. Spain was not involved in World War I. Therefore, when the contagion arrived in Spain, the press reported the devastation it caused instead of denying its existence. So you see, Spain was the only country talking about the flu and its impact on their population. This gave the countries who were trying to hide its existence an excuse to blame it on Spain. Although the one thing epidemiologists can agree on is that the influenza pandemic of 1918 did not originate in Spain. Allied forces were reluctant to admit any weaknesses in their troops. In fact, both British and American governments cracked down on the freedom of the press during this time to ensure that only positive information about the war effort was disseminated to the public. Woodrow Wilson passed the Sedition Act of 1918, making it illegal for any American citizen to say anything disparaging about the country or its military strength. So, health professionals inside of the military were reluctant to speak publicly about the illness that was decimating the, their troops. In May of 1918, the flu entered Italy and Northern Africa in addition to Spain, Portugal, England, and Germany. At the end of May, a boat with six sailors docked in Mumbai, India. Six workers reported being sick. Then the workers in an adjacent dock reported being ill. 
From there, infected Indians boarded trains and boats with no clue that they were carrying this virulent virus through the Indian subcontinent and into Asia. The flu showed up in a Shanghai dock around the same time. In June of 1918, the flu made its way across enemy lines into German forces. It was most likely introduced by a sick prisoner of war. Knock-me-down fever ravaged the habitually malnourished German troops. By July, a quarter of the German soldiers and some units were sick, nearly 500,000 men altogether. Mustard gas, used on the battlefields of World War I as chemical warfare, was known to cause mutations. Sadly, this may have contributed to the mutation of the 1918 flu virus that was already lodged in the throats of infected sailors. The virus that emerged from the battlefields of World War I was far more virulent and deadly than the one that arrived in April with the soldiers who got off of the military transport ships in Brest, France. It could kill within 12 hours of a patient presenting symptoms. By June, the virus arrived in Singapore, which was an international trade hub, and from there into Indonesia, Malaysia, and Thailand, carried by sick dock workers, merchants, and sailors who arrived at various ports. The Spanish flu spread to Greece, Scandinavia, Russia, South, South America, and Peru, as well as Sub-Saharan Africa in July of 1918. It made its way into Eastern Africa via a port in Bombasa, Kenya. Ships arriving with supplies and goods carried the virus to West Africa, as well as through Freetown and Sierra Leone. The flu was brought to Cape Town, South Africa, on ships arriving into port in July as well. In August, it had returned to the United States, more virulent and deadly than when it left in February of that year. But what made this particular flu so heinous that people actually mistook it for a form of the bubonic plague before realizing that it was a flu virus? The Spanish flu had all the hallmarks of the ordinary flu, like body aches, chills, fever, diarrhea, and nausea, but it also had some uniquely awful symptoms as well. Symptoms that put this particular flu in a league of its own. Sufferers developed fever so high that they would hallucinate. This often was accompanied by headaches so painful that people would suffer double vision or go completely blind. The severely ill would often convulse and writhe so violently that doctors believed they had dengue fever. Some people developed vertigo exacerbated by severe ear infections that often caused the eardrums to rupture in hours. It sometimes caused victims to go deaf and blind or suffer paralysis. For some, these debilitating symptoms were temporary. For others, they were permanent. People who got the most extreme cases of the 1918 Spanish flu coughed until their lungs and abdominal muscles ripped. Air would leak out of perforated lungs and get lodged beneath the skin. When these patients rolled over, the air pockets trapped between the skin and the rib cage caused a popping sound like Rice Krispies in milk. People bled from their eyes, ears, and mouths. The production of mucus was so profuse that dying 
Influenza victims literally drowned in a mixture of their own blood and mucus as it filled their lungs, noses, and throats. The lack of oxygen in the bloodstream would cause these poor, unfortunate, infected people to turn blue. At this point, doctors knew it was only a few hours before a cyanotic, oxygen-deprived patient expired. Nurses in some hospitals would put toe tags on living influenza patients who were turning blue to save time. Some people were so blue when they died that it was difficult to distinguish between white corpses and their black counterparts. And healthy doctors and nurses would come in from their shifts and collapse dead from the flu before they ended their workday. Unlike previous flu epidemics, the Spanish flu pandemic targeted people in their prime between the ages of 20 and 40. The majority of its victims were healthy and succumbed specifically because they were healthy. When the virus entered their bodies, it caused a cytokine storm. Their own healthy immune systems triggered a massive anti-inflammatory response to the virus. Their bodies flooded their systems with disease-fighting cytokines, which inflamed their lungs so badly that it caused them to fill with mucus, making it impossible to absorb oxygen. Hence, the cyanosis, or bluing of the oxygen-deprived patient. It's hard to believe that a virus this deadly and horrendous has been relegated to a footnote in history until very recently. Epidemiologists and public health professionals revisited the pandemic on its centennial anniversary in 2018 and 2019. There are no monuments or memorials to this time in history outside of those that stand as markers to mass graves of those who lost their lives to the 1918 flu. Historians, journalists, and epidemiologists have been talking about the Spanish influenza pandemic a lot since the emergence of the current coronavirus pandemic. Other than that, the Spanish flu epidemic seemed to be forgotten in light of World War I and the massive geopolitical changes that took place in the years that the virus circled the globe. On a personal note, at the time this episode is being produced, America is in the grip of the coronavirus. The death toll in New York City where I'm recording this episode, has topped 3,000. More people have died of this virus in New York City than died in the 9-11 terror attacks. I heard ambulances rushing the sick to overcrowded, understaffed hospitals around the area as I researched this episode. At this time, we are almost out of respirators in our hospitals, and our medical professionals are putting their lives in danger each day they go to work because of the lack of protective gear. Already, several doctors and nurses have fallen victim to this contagion of 2020. As the sirens whiz by my window, it's hard to ignore the parallels between this pandemic and its devastating predecessor, the Spanish flu of 1918. The past is prologue, people. Those of us who forget it will be doomed to repeat it, and those of us who don't learn from it will fall victim to our own ignorance. Please join us on the next mini-sode of Wandering Blurds, 
where we will follow the Spanish flu back to America. We'll look at the public health response on its return and some of the virus's more notable victims. Thank you for joining us for this mini-sode of Wandering Blurds. A special thanks goes out to our production team, producer extraordinaire Lance Solo, best editor in the Blurdiverse, Cheyenne French, and production coordinator, the one who keeps us all on track, Miss Miki Brown. Until next time, this is Miki, just Miki, no more, no less, reminding you to be well, stay healthy, and keep your heads up. While your bodies may be stationary, may your minds always wander. Wandering Blurds is a production of the Gifted Sounds Network. You can visit this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to your podcast, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and of course, the Gifted Sounds Network homepage. Thank you again.